Section 14 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Prince Bismarck, Part 1. 1815 to 1898. The German Empire. Before presenting Bismarck, it will be necessary to glance at the work of those great men who prepared the way not only for him, but also for the soldier Moltke, men who raised Prussia from the humiliation resulting from her conquest by Napoleon. That humiliation was as complete as it was unexpected. It was even greater than that of France after the later Franco-Prussian War. Prussia was dismembered, its provinces were seized by the conqueror, its population was reduced to less than four millions, its territory was occupied by 150,000 French soldiers. The king himself was an exile and a fugitive from his own capital. Every sort of indignity was heaped on his prostrate subjects, who were compelled to pay a war indemnity beyond their power. Trade and commerce were cut off by Napoleon's continental system, and universal poverty overspread the country, always poor, and now poorer than ever. Prussia had no allies to rally to her sinking fortunes. She was completely isolated. Most of her fortresses were in the hands of her enemies, and the magnificent army of which she had been so proud since the days of Frederick the Great was dispersed. At the Peace of Tilsit in 1807, it looked as if the whole kingdom was about to be absorbed in the empire of Napoleon, like Bavaria and the Rhine provinces, and wiped out of the map of Europe like unfortunate Poland. But even this did not complete the humiliation. Napoleon compelled the King of Prussia, Friedrich William III, to furnish him soldiers to fight against Russia, as if Prussia were already incorporated with his own empire and had lost her nationality. At that time France and Russia were in alliance, and Prussia had no course to adopt but submission or complete destruction. And yet Prussia refused in these evil days to join the Confederation of the Rhine, which embraced all the German states at the south and west of Austria and Prussia. Napoleon, however, was too much engrossed in his scheme of conquering Spain to swallow up Prussia entirely, as he intended, after he should have subdued Spain. So, after all, Prussia had before her only the fortune of Ulysses in the cave of Polyphemus to be devoured the last. The escape of Prussia was owing, on the one hand, to the necessity for Napoleon to withdraw his main army from Prussia in order to fight in Spain, and, secondly, to the transcendent talents of a few patriots to whom the king in his distress was forced to listen. The chief of these were Stein, Hardenberg, and Schamhorst. It was the work of Stein to reorganize the internal administration of Prussia, including the financial department that of Hardenberg to conduct the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and that of Scharnhorst to reorganize the military power. The two former were the nobles, the latter sprung from the people, a peasant's son. But they worked together in tolerable harmony, considering the rival jealousies that at one time existed among all the high officials, with their innumerable prejudices. Baron von Stein, born in 1757, of an old imperial knightly family from the country near Nassau, was as a youth well educated, and at the age of twenty-three entered the Prussian service under Friedrich the Great, in the mining department, where he gained rapid promotion. In 1786 he visited England and made a careful study of her institutions, 
which he profoundly admired. In 1787 he became a sort of provincial governor, being director of the war and domain chambers at Cleves and Ham. In 1804 Stein became Minister of Trade, having charge of excise, customs, manufactures, and trade. The whole financial administration at this time, under King Friedrich William III, was in a state of great confusion, from an unnecessary number of officials who did not work harmoniously. There was too much red tape. Stein brought order out of confusion, simplified the administration, punished corruption, increased the national credit, then at a very low ebb, and re-established the Bank of Prussia on a basis that enabled it to assist the government. But a larger field than that of finance was opened to Stein in the War of 1806. The king entrusted him the portfolio of foreign affairs, not willingly, but because he regarded him as the ablest man in the kingdom. Stein declined to be foreign minister unless he was entirely unshackled, and the king was obliged to yield for the misfortunes of the country had now culminated in the disastrous defeat at Friedland. The king, however, soon quarrelled with his minister, being jealous of his commanding abilities, and unused to dictation from any source. After a brief exile at Nassau, the peace of Tilsit having proved the sagacity of his views, Stein returned to power as virtual dictator of the kingdom, with the approbation of Napoleon. But his dictatorship lasted only about a year, when he was again discharged. During that year, 1807, Stein made his mark in Prussian history. Without dwelling on details, he effected the abolition of serfdom in Prussia, the trade in land, and municipal reforms, giving citizens self-government in place of the despotism of military bureaus. He made it his business to pay off the French war indemnity, 150 million francs, a great sum for Prussia to raise when dismembered and trodden in the dust under 150,000 French soldiers and to establish a new and improved administrative system. But more than all, he attempted to rouse a moral, religious, and patriotic spirit in the nation, and to inspire it anew with courage, self-confidence, and self-sacrifice. In 1808 the ministry became warlike in spite of its despair, the first glimpse of hope being the popular rising in Spain. It was during the ministry of Stein, and through his efforts, that the anti-Napoleonic revolution began. The intense hostility of Stein to Napoleon and his commanding abilities led Napoleon in 1808 imperatively to demand from the King of Prussia the dismissal of his minister, and Friedrich William dared not resist. Stein did not retire, however, until after the royal edict had emancipated the serfs of Prussia, and until that other great reform was made by which the nobles lost the monopoly of office and exemption from taxation, while the citizen class gained admission to all posts, trades and occupations. These great reforms were chiefly to be traced to Stein, although Hardenberg and others, like Schoen and Niebuhr, had a hand in them. Stein also opened the military profession to the citizen class, which before was closed, only nobles being entrusted with command in the army. It is true that nobles still continued to form a large majority of officers, even as peasants formed the bulk of the army but the removal of restrictions and the abolition of serfdom tended to create patriotic sentiments among all classes, on which the strength of armies in no small degree rests. In the time of Frederick the Great, the army was a mere machine. It was something more when the nation, in 1811, rallied to achieve its independence. Then was born the idea of nationality, that, whatever obligations a Prussian owed to the state, Germany was greater than Prussia itself. 
this idea was the central principle of stein's political system leading ultimately to the unity of germany as finally affected by bismarck and moltke it became almost synonymous with that patriotism which sustains governments and thrones the absence of which was the great defect of the german states before the times of napoleon when both princes and people lost sight of the unity of the nation in the interests of petty sovereignties stein was a man of prodigious energy practical good sense and lofty character but irascible haughty and contemptuous and was far from being a favorite with the king and court his great idea was the unity and independence of germany he thought more of german nationality than of prussian aggrandizement it was his aim to make his countrymen feel that they were germans rather than prussians and that it was only by a union of the various german states that they could hope to shake off the french yoke galling and humiliating beyond description when stein was driven into exile at the dictation of napoleon with the loss of his private fortune he was invited by the emperor of russia to aid him with his counsels and it can be scarcely doubted that in the employ of russia he rendered his immense services to germany and had no little influence in shaping the movements of the allies in effecting the ruin of the common despot on this point however i cannot dwell count afterward prince hardenberg held to substantially the same views and was more acceptable to the king as minister than was the austere and haughty stein although his morals were loose and his abilities far inferior to those of the former but his diplomatic talents were considerable and his manners were agreeable like those of metternich while stein treated kings and princes as ordinary men and dictated to them the course which was necessary to pursue it was the work of hardenberg to create a peasant proprietorship of modern prussia but it was the previous work of stein to establish free trade in land which means the removal of hindrances to the sale and purchase of land which still remains one of the abuses of england the ultimate effect of which was to remove caste in land as well as caste in persons the great educational movement in the deepest depression of prussian affairs was headed by william baron von humboldt when prussia lay disarmed dismembered and impoverished the university of berlin was founded the government contributing one hundred and fifty thousand thalers a year and humboldt the first minister of public education succeeded in inducing the most eminent and learned men in germany to become professors in this new university i look upon this educational movement in the most gloomy period of german history as one of the noblest achievements which any nation ever made in the cause of science and literature it took away the sting of military ascendancy and raised men of genius to an equality with nobles and as the universities were the centers of liberal sentiments and all liberalizing ideas they must have exerted no small influence on the war of liberation itself as well as on the cause of patriotism which was the foundation of the future greatness of prussia students flocked from all parts of germany to hear lectures from accomplished and patriotic professors who inculcated the love of fatherland germany though fallen into the hands of a military hero from defects in the administration of governments and armies was not disgraced when her professors in the university were the greatest scholars of the world they created a new empire not of the air as some one sneeringly remarked but of mind which has gone on from conquering to conquer for more than fifty years german universities have been the center of european thought and scholastic culture pedantic perhaps but original and profound before proceeding to the main subject i have to speak of one more great reform which was the work of Scharnhorst. 
this was that series of measures which determined the result of the greatest military struggles of the nineteenth century and raised prussia to the front rank of military monarchies it was the levy en masse composed of the youth of the nation without distinction of rank instead of an army made up of peasants and serfs and commanded by their feudal masters scharnhorst introduced a compulsory system indeed but it was not unequal every man was made to feel that he had a personal interest in defending his country and there were no exceptions made true the old system of frederick the great was that of conscription but from this conscription large classes and whole districts were exempted while the soldiers who fought in the war of liberation were drawn from all classes alike hence there was no unjust compulsion which weakens patriotism and entails innumerable miseries it was impossible in the utter exhaustion of the national finances to raise a sufficient number of volunteers to meet the emergencies of the times therefore if napoleon was to be overthrown it was absolutely necessary to compel everybody to serve in the army for a limited period the nation saw the necessity and made no resistance thus patriotism lent her aid and became an overwhelming power the citizen soldier was no great burden to the government since it was bound to his support only for a limited period long or short as the exigency of the country demanded hence large armies were maintained at comparatively trifling expense i need not go into the details of a system which made prussia a nation of patriots as well as of soldiers and which made scharnhorst a great national benefactor sharing with stein the glory of a great deliverance he did not live to see the complete triumph of his system matured by genius and patient study but his work remained to future generations and made prussia invincible except to a coalition of powerful enemies all this was done under the eye of napoleon and a dreamy middle class became an effective soldiery so too did the peasants no longer subjected to corporal punishment and other humiliations what a great thing it was to restore dignity to a whole nation and kindle the fires of patriotic ardor among poor and rich alike to the credit of the king he saw the excellence of the new system at once adopted it and generously rewarded its authors scharnhorst the peasant's son was made a noble and was retained in office until he died stein however whose overshadowing greatness created jealousy remained simply a baron and spent his last days in retirement though not unhonored or without influence even when not occupying the great offices of state to which no man ever had a higher claim the king did not like him and the king was still an absolute monarch friedrich william the third was by no means a great man being jealous timid and vacillating but it was in his reign that prussia laid the foundation of her greatness as a military monarchy it was not the king who laid this foundation but the great men whom providence raised up in the darkest hours of prussia's humiliation he did one prudent thing however out of timidity when his ministers waged vigorous and offensive measures he refused to arm against napoleon when prussia lay at his mercy this turned out to be the salvation of prussia a weak man's instincts proved to be wiser than the wisdom of the wise when napoleon's doom was sealed by his disasters in russia then and not till then did the prussian king unite with russia and austria to crush the unscrupulous despot the condition of prussia then briefly stated when napoleon was sent to st helena to meditate and die was this a conquering army of which blucher was one of its greatest generals had been raised by the levee en masse a conscription indeed 
not of peasants alone obliged to serve for twenty years but of the whole nation for three years of active service and a series of administrative reforms had been introduced and extended to every department of the state by which greater economy and a more complete system were inaugurated favoritism abolished and the finances improved so as to support the government and furnish the sinews of war while alliances were made with great powers who hitherto had been enemies or doubtful friends these alliances resulted in what is called the german confederation or bund a strict union of all the various states for defensive purposes and also to maintain a general system to suppress revolutionary and internal dissensions most of the german states entered into this confederacy at the head of which was austria it was determined in june 1815 at vienna that the confederacy should be managed by a general assembly called a diet the seat of which was located at frankfurt in this diet the various independent states thirty-nine in number had votes in proportion to their population and were bound to contribute troops of one soldier to every hundred inhabitants amounting to three hundred thousand in all of which austria and prussia and bavaria furnished more than half this arrangement virtually gave to austria and prussia a preponderance in the diet and as the states were impoverished by the late war and the people generally detested war a long peace of forty years with a short interval of a year was secured to germany during which prosperity returned and the population nearly doubled the germans turned their swords into pruning hooks and all kinds of industry were developed especially manufactures the cities were adorned with magnificent works of art and libraries schools and universities covered the land no nation ever made a more signal progress in material prosperity than did the german states during this period of forty years especially prussia which became in addition intellectually the most cultivated country in europe with twenty one thousand primary schools and one thousand academies or gymnasia in which mathematics and the learned languages were taught by accomplished scholars to say nothing of the universities which drew students from all christian and civilized countries in both hemispheres the rapid advance in learning however especially in the universities and the gymnasia led to the discussion of innumerable subjects including endless theories of government and the rights of man by which discontent was engendered and virtue was not advanced strange to say even crime increased the universities became hotbeds of political excitement duels beer drinking private quarrels and infidel discussion causing great alarm to conservative governments and to peaceful citizens generally at last the diet began to interfere for it claimed the general oversight of all internal affairs in the various states an army of three hundred thousand men which obeyed the dictation of the diet was not to be resisted and as this diet was controlled by austria and prussia it became every year more despotic and anti-democratic in consequence the press was gradually fettered the universities were closely watched and all revolutionary movements in cities were suppressed discontent and popular agitations as usual went hand in hand as early as eighteen eighteen the great reaction against all liberal sentiments in political matters had fairly set in the king of prussia neglected and finally refused to grant the constitutional government which he had promised in the day of his adversity before the battle of waterloo while austria guided by metternich stamped her iron heel on everything which looked like intellectual or national independence this memorable reaction against all progress in government not confined to the german states but extending to europe generally has already been considered in previous chapters 
it was the great political feature in the history of europe for ten years after the fall of napoleon particularly in austria where hatred of all popular movements raged with exceeding bitterness intensified by the revolutions in spain italy and greece the assassination of kotzebue the dramatic author by a political fanatic for his supposed complicity with the despotic schemes of the czar kindled popular excitement into a blazing flame but still more fiercely incited the sovereigns of germany to make every effort to suppress even liberty of thought during the period then when ultra-conservative principles animated the united despots of the various german states and the diet controlled by benedict repressed all liberal movements little advance was made in prussia in the way of reforms but a great advance was made in all questions of political economy and industrial matters free trade was established in the most unlimited sense between all the states and provinces of the confederation all restraints were removed from the navigation of rivers new markets were opened in every direction for the productions of industry in eighteen thirty nine the zollverein or customs union was established by which a uniform scale of duties was imposed on northern germany on all imports and exports but no political reforms which the king had promised were effected during the life of friedrich william the third hardenberg who with stein had inaugurated liberal movements had lost his influence although he was retained in power till he died for the twenty years succeeding the confederation of the german states in eighteen twenty constitutional freedom made little or no progress in germany the only advance made in prussia was in eighteen twenty three when the provincial estates or diets were established these however were the mere shadow of representative government since the estates were convoked at irregular intervals and had neither the power to initiate laws nor grant supplies they could only express their opinions concerning changes in the laws pertaining to persons and property on the seventh of june eighteen forty friedrich wilhelm the third of prussia died and was succeeded by his son friedrich william the fourth a religious and patriotic king who was compelled to make promises for some sort of constitutional liberty and to grant certain concessions which although they did not mean much gave general satisfaction among other things the freedom of the press was partially guaranteed with certain restrictions and the zollverein was extended to brunswick and hesse homburg meantime the government entered with zeal upon the construction of railways and the completion of the cathedral of cologne which tended to a more permanent union of the north german states we are not engaged here said the new monarch on the inauguration of the completion of that proudest work of medieval art with the construction of an ordinary edifice it is a work bespeaking the spirit of union and concord which animates the whole of germany and all its persuasions that we are now constructing this inauguration amid immense popular enthusiasm was soon followed by the meeting of the estates of the whole kingdom at berlin which for the first time united the various provincial estates in a general diet but its functions were limited to questions involving a diminution of taxation no member was allowed to speak more than once on any question and the representatives of the commons were only a third of the whole assembly this naturally did not satisfy the nation and petitions flowed in for the abolition of the censorship of the press and for the publicity of debate the king was not prepared to make these concessions in full but he abolished the censorship of the press as to works extending to above twenty pages and enjoined the censors of lesser pamphlets and journals to exercise gentleness and discretion and not erase anything which did not strike at the monarchy 
at length in eighteen forty seven the desire was so universal for some form of representative government that a royal edict convoked a general assembly of the estates of prussia arranged in four classes the nobles the equestrian order the towns and the rural districts the diet consisted of six hundred and seventy members of which only eighty were nobles and was empowered to discuss all questions pertaining to legislation but the initiative of all measures was reserved to the crown this national diet assembled on the twenty fourth of july and was opened by the king in person with a noble speech remarkable for its elevation of tone he convoked the diet the king said to make himself acquainted with the wishes and wants of his people but not to change the constitution which guaranteed an absolute monarchy the province of the diet was consultative rather than legislative political and military power as before remained with the king still an important step had been taken towards representative institutions it was about this time as a member of the national diet that otto edward leopold von bismarck appeared upon the political stage it was a period of great political excitement not only in prussia but throughout europe and also of great material prosperity railways had been built the zollverein had extended through north germany the universities were in their glory and into everything fearless thinkers were casting their thoughtful eyes thirty-four years of peace had enriched and united the german states the great idea of the day was political franchise everybody aspired to solve political problems and wished to have a voice in deliberative assemblies there was also an unusual agitation of religious ideas rouge had attempted the complete emancipation of germany from papal influences and university professors threw their influence on the side of rationalism and popular liberty on the whole there was a general tendency towards democratic ideas which was opposed with great bitterness by the conservative parties made up of nobles and government officials. End of section 14